FX Medicine is very proud to have posted our 200th podcast. The FX Medicine team would like to thank the enormous generosity of all our guests who have graciously donated their time, their expertise, and their stories of both triumph and adversity. Most of all, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for your continued feedback and support, and for giving us direction and purpose as we move forward together into the future. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today from Perth, Western Australia, is Dr. Adrian Lepresti, who's a clinical psychologist in private practice and a senior researcher at Murdoch University in Perth. He's over 20 years of clinical experience working with children through to adults, suffering from a range of mental health conditions, including depressive and anxiety-related disorders. Dr. Lepresti has completed his PhD and published several articles in peer-reviewed journals on the effects of diet, nutraceuticals, sleep and exercise on biological pathways associated with depression, ADHD and bipolar disorder. He's also completed clinical trials investigating the antidepressant effects of curcumin and saffron in people with depression and anxiety. Dr. Lopresti is a strong advocate of psychological, nutritional and lifestyle-based interventions to enhance mental health and continues to conduct research in this area. Welcome to FX Medicine, Adrian. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for, thanks for that welcome. Well, I've got to say thank you for taking time off on this Western Australian holiday. <laughs> I'm just imagining you in your fluffy bunny slippers sitting back there at home. <laughs> it's um, a good picture. It's not a good picture, actually, but uh, yeah. we'll go with it. <laughs> So I've got to go back to your background. Tell us about how, as a psychologist, you got in, um, interested in nutritional medicine. What, what tipped the scale? Have you always had this interest? Um, yeah, I've always had interest in nutrition and exercise just from a personal interest. Uh, and, I mean, I went down the traditional routes of psychology, you know, learning more about the psychological therapies and then uh, through my first I suppose, decade of practice, I primarily uh, used the psychological treatments, uh, cognitive behaviour therapy and kind of off-streams of that. Um, and that was effective for many people, but I suppose I really wanted to, you know, I was really interested in, the, in that holistic approach, um, looking at not just coping skills and belief systems and, 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 and ways we can kind of manage our emotions through psychological techniques, but I really wanted to look at uh, how nutrition and exercise and and general lifestyle factors can improve mood. And, and that's what led me to kind of read up in the area, uh, learn more about the area. And uh, I became more and more interested as it went by. And, and from there, I did my PhD looking at lifestyle um, treatments, looking at diet. And in particular, a big part of my PhD was looking at the effects of curcumin uh, in the area of depression. Yeah. Now, I've, I've, I've got to sort of go back to this because you did some work with Felice Jacker, who, bow, Professor Felice Jacker is just like this awesome researcher with regards to diet and, and mood disorders. Um, but I've got to ask you how you were viewed by your colleagues or your cohort during your studies with this weird hippie way of, of <laughs> therapy. Were you accepted? Were you questioned or were you ridiculed? 
Oh, look, I, I haven't been ridiculed. I think there's a lot of psychologists who are actually quite interested in the effects of diet and um, and supplementation and so forth on, on mental health disorders. Um, so I don't think... I, I certainly haven't been rejected. Um, I, I think a lot of psychologists don't quite understand the connection and that um, confuses them a little bit. Um, but, you know, I've been... Uh, I've had several workshops that have conducted and it's been very well attended and the reception's been really good. Um, I suppose the issue for psychologists is really just under trying to understand the mechanisms behind how kind of diet in particular mm. can affect mood, which we do not cover at all during our training. I think this is a really interesting, very controversial topic that there are certain um, you know, proponents of supplements will say that doctors don't cover diet and then the doctors will say they do. And yet whenever I've interviewed an integrative doctor, they said, no, we definitely didn't. <laughs> so, so it's really yeah. interesting who thinks they do and don't and to what yeah. degree. Um, certainly not to the degree of a dietitian or a nutritionist. No, and I think, I mean, even, you know, you, you might talk about, in, in our training, you know, we might talk about having a healthy diet and, you know, and touch on that. But, you know, even the definition of what a healthy diet, <laughs> uh, I don't think psychologists necessarily have an understanding of what that is. The, so, yeah, the assumption um, of a healthy diet, yeah. yes. What about this, contra this uh, concept of inflammation in depression? Mm -hmm. I, I actually covered this with um, Professor Gordon Parker some years ago, and he said, look, maybe in certain things, but he wasn't really convinced. And yet the more and more I read about this, it's got to be a, a player, maybe not at the major cause, but it's got to be a player at least in the driver of continued depression. But what do you, what do you think? Well, like what's, where did your interest in this spark? Well, I mean, I think the research is, is pretty convincing that inflammation does play a role in depression and, um, and other mental health disorders. So, yeah, there's a increasing body of research to support that. Um, I don't think necessarily inflammation or inflammatory processes is not necessarily the driver of all people's depression, but I think it's important. Um, and we really, I mean, I suppose the other thing too is while inflammation has a role, there's still the key for me is always um, what's the cause of, of the inflammation? What's the cause, what's the cause of somebody presenting with depression? Um, and I'm, and inflammation doesn't necessarily having a, you know, a CR, high CRP, for example, doesn't tell you about where that CRP, that high CRP is coming from. Mm. So, I want to, to really get into more the nitty-gritty and try to identify what it is that might be driving that inflammation for that individual, which might be very different to somebody else. But absolutely, I think inflammation, oxidative stress has a role. It certainly impacts on, on you know, neurotransmitter production. Um, and uh, and you know, the research, is, is, as I said, is convincing. One of the things you mentioned then was just this this key thing about how do we mark inflammation? Do we have to look at the fulminant um, signal of inflammation, you know, tumor necrosis factor alpha and things like that. Uh, rather than that, should we be looking at lower forms, like for instance, HA, um, high sensitivity CRP? And where do we look? Um, I have concerns about if we're looking for a fulminant marker of inflammation, like we would see in something like Crohn's, that's why we always fail when we're looking at interventions to reduce these. Um, even NF-kappa-B, for instance, there are, are trials out there which show that curcumin fails to reduce NF-kappa-B, but I wonder if that's the correct marker we should be looking for. What's your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I mean, I wrote a paper a while ago uh, talking a bit about some of the, uh, I suppose, biomarkers that we could use to identify um, depression and also whether we could use them as um, markers to determine treatment progress. Yeah. And and the reality is that there is there is no marker, there's no single marker to uh, that can do that. And I don't think there ever will be. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, I think there's probably some value in, in developing uh, some type of algorithm to look at a whole collection of different markers and from there maybe identify things. But, you know, I think that to, to use a marker as... An identifier of information is a single identifier of information is going to be flawed, and uh, it may lead you into the wrong direction. Yeah, and uh, you covered uh, in you know, I think it was another podcast I heard you in where you were looking at atypical depression. That interested me because Mike Ashes had this mucosal management sort of thing for atypical depression, and it stunned me about the prevalence of it as part of depression as a whole. Can you take our listeners through just how important it is to look for atypical depression, and why is it atypical? Well, the first thing with atypical depression is that it is the most typical type of depression. Um, so it's, it can uh, confuse people a little bit. So it's about 40% of the population is, uh, presents with the atypical form, um, of which there seems to be an immune um, activity is enhanced in, uh, in, in atypical depression. So for, for the listeners who, who don't know that some of the symptoms associated with atypical depression, I'll just list them. So you know, the first one is, well, one of them is weight gain or kind of increased appetites uh, can occur. Uh, people with atypical depression will also have hypersomnia, so they'll want to sleep more rather than sleep less. Mm. Um, there's the heavy limbs, uh, lead and paralysis, which, which often uh, can occur in people with uh, atypical depression. Uh, they also have a sensitivity to interpersonal reject, rejection, so I'm kind of asking questions around that. And then finally, with people with atypical depression, they they react to positive events. So their mood can lift when they're experiencing a positive event. So they're kind of the symptoms uh, if you want to identify whether somebody's presenting with uh, atypical depression. Mm. Uh, and as I said, there's an immune kind of response yeah. there. And what was interesting that I found in my study with the curcumin was that uh, when I looked at curcumin it, for depression as a whole, it was it was effective. Uh, through a double-blind placebo-controlled study. But what we actually found was that curcumin in particular, and now that's been confirmed in two studies that I've done, uh, was particularly effective for people with atypical depression. So there was enhanced effectiveness in, in that subgroup of individuals. So, yeah. so I think that's one of the things, if you want to look at, rather than look at biomarkers, but look at symptoms, you know, these if people are presenting with these types of symptoms, there's probably some immune inflammatory process going on and then we need to look at some form of anti-inflammatory treatment. One of the symptoms of that atypical depression, sorry to harp on about this, but Mm -hmm. it really interests me, is that um, interpersonal rejection Mm -hmm. and how that would maybe marry with inflammation. Um, You know, I'm I'm scratching it here. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But is there any sort of gender difference with regards to who might suffer from atypical depression, females more than males, for instance, who might be more in touch with their feelings? Yeah, I, I think the research is uh, indicating that more women suffer from the atypical form. Right. Um, the, and so I, I think that plays a part. There's some really interesting, I, I, uh, interesting um, research also showing that inflammation um, increases sensitisation 
to to uh, stresses and to to negativity. Yeah. Um, and there's been some studies showing that if you expose somebody uh, to uh, inflammatory toxin, inflammatory endotoxin, then they become more reactive to rejection. So, so some, somewhere around that inflammatory process then affects neural structures that are associated with that, uh, that I suppose, sensitization to, to rejection and negativity. So I guess that ties in with the gut-brain axis, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the, the gut is is the key for a lot of a lot of diseases, um, and and we're confirming that now more with uh, with mental health disorders, which is again one that uh, you know unfortunately my uh, colleagues don't necessarily quite understand the the connection. Certainly, we know that uh, stress can affect the gut, but uh, um, as many of the listeners are already aware of, that uh, the gut can also affect the brain, and uh, if we can uh, do something through some gut healing, then we may have a positive effect on brain function. Mm, mm, absolutely. Now, you chose uh, curcumin BCM95 um, and saffron and sage as interventions for your research. Other researchers use different forms of curcumin. Yeah, there's the C3 plus the piperine. There's Longvita. Um, I don't know of any others at the moment, but there, there's probably more coming out. There's a bit of a war. In fact, there's a lot of a war. Ours is best. Ours is always best. And yet, you know, a lot of the preclinical stuff was done on even the the lowest um, absorption, dare I say that word. Um, do, you th- do you think the type of formulation is critical or do you think there's a lot of turf war going on here? Oh, look, I think a lot of it, yeah, there is a lot of um, marketing going on around the bioavailability and, and ours is more bioavailable than yours. And, and there's always questions around how people assess bioavailability and some mm. of the, the, the markers that they use uh, to identify that. Um, and, and, and so there's, there's issues around that. I think, you know, that's currently the, the key around kind of the marketing side of things. But as you've mentioned already, even, you know, standard curcumin um, has shown to have some benefits and, and you know, I've struggled with this bioavailability issue for quite some time, and uh, I've, I'm actually in the process of writing a paper at the moment, talking a bit about well, maybe it's not bioavailability no, that's, that's right. the issue. Maybe yeah. it's about um, you know the issue I just talked about earlier is about the curcumin and its gut enhancing effects. Mm. Uh, and so, um, you know, what the re- what I've you know learning from the research is that curcumin certainly has. Um, may have a positive effect on microbial ecology, and and uh, and from that point of view, and also has a uh, you know in animal studies is shown to have an impact on intestinal permeability, and so maybe by uh, enhancing gut function and therefore uh, reducing inflammation via that way, and therefore also improving kind of um, nutrient absorption and hormonal production, yes. um, maybe that's how how at least partly how curcumin works yeah. through, its, through its enhancement of gut function. I think it's really interesting about even the term bioavailability. I think that's even been bastardised a bit <laughs> for marketing to yeah. I think we're really talking about absorption of curcumin. Um, yeah. You know, and, and even that, as you say, it's with you're sort of um, harping on about something once perhaps because of the, the horse has already bolted. Um, it might actually be healing it at the gut levels, which is a very good point to investigate. I think that's really good. Yeah, I think that's the next area, really. And it was interesting, one of the the studies that I did uh, looking at curcumin, and I looked at some of the biomarkers, and uh, and one of them uh, was a marker that may be associated with with leaky gut. And so the theory, and and having elevated levels of this biomarker 
um, was associated with increased efficacy from curcumin. So potentially people with kind of leaky gut may particularly be beneficial with uh, from curcumin. So, um, I mean, there's other things within the the curcumin too that uh, I think are beneficial. I mean, I chose the BCM initially because of the bioavailability um, research. So I was certainly intrigued by that, but yeah, you know, it also contains turmeric oils and things like that, which which are used to enhance its bioavailability or its absorption. But I think turmeric also also has you know your antimicrobial function and things like that, um, which may be beneficial too. Ah, so you might be again working on the microbiota sway. Mm, right, potentially. I, I think one of the things you know, whenever I hear about these newfangled, better ways of absorbing a food component, I always try and go back to, well, where did this research actually start with food? <laughs> so why don't we look at food? How, how about we do that first? <laughs> you know, absolutely. Um, and I've often told people who I've given curcumins to is that always make sure your tongue's yellow at some stage during the day, preferably not from a texter. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe there's turmeric textures coming around. So that might be a good one. <laughs> there you go. Increased bioavailability. Um, <laughs> one of the things I was interested in was the inclusion of saffron. And this has been a bit of a favourite herb uh, of Jerome Saras in his research. But I like the earlier work, referring back to this guy, I think it was an Iranian called Akonzida, Shahin <laughs> Akonzida. And then there was work done by Heather Hausenblaus, really interesting, not just for depression, but for anxiety and other things, insomnia. So why did you choose to do the both? And I've got to ask then, which did you find was the major player? Could you tease apart an effect of each or both? Do you, were they important to have together? Um I chose, well, initially I chose both because, uh, I mean, I had already done a study just on uh, curcumin on its own. So uh, then I wanted to replicate it and I had a, a um, you know, thought that maybe we, if we combine the two together, they might increase the efficacy. Um, and, you know, obviously we know that, you know, incorporating herbs and spices in our diet is important for, for health and you wouldn't just have one herb or one spice every day, you'd want to combine it. So... So I used the combination. I did uh, had a had four conditions in the study. So there was uh, one condition was the placebo. Then there was two conditions which varying doses of the curcumin of the BCM, and then um, there was one condition which combined the two, the BCM and the saffron. Mm-hmm. Now, what I found was that the three active conditions were more effective than the, the placebo, but there was no difference between the three groups in terms of the efficacy. So the low-dose curcumin was just as effective as the high-dose, and the combined dose, combined ingredients were just as effective as the others. Now, saying that, um, the study was flawed in that when you're comparing treatment, active treatment conditions, you really do need quite large sample sizes. And so, uh, so, you you know, if the actors were, were... effective by 30% and the combined was effective by 40%, it would only be a 10% improvement. And to, to identify that through t- statistical analysis, you need quite large yeah. sample sizes, but yeah. we didn't have that. So, but um, that's now, your next one. That's your next that's trial. The next one. That's the next one. <laughs> and the other one that I didn't have was I didn't have saffron on its own compared to Kirkman. Ah, right. uh, and that gotcha. would have been nice to see. So. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think this is the uh, – look, it's, it's the thing that dogs so much of – uh, integrative medicine research, and that is the numbers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how do you get even a number to treat when you haven't even got a decent sample size? Yeah. But 
having said that, I think the thing must be acknowledged that it's really hard to patent an egg. Um, admittedly, we're using a patented type form of curcumin, but it's very hard to get research paid for that will um, include those massive numbers that we see in the pharma- pharmacological trials. And, and yeah, and that's the problem, I think. That, I mean, I've been fortunate enough and where, and this is, a, I suppose, one of the criticisms too, is that I've been funded by the, the company, the studies were funded by the company that, uh, you know, the BCM, the, the company that owns BCM. Yeah. Now, saying that, they've been, you know, they're extremely um, ethical company and, and, and basically they've provided the funds and we at Murdoch University have independently run the study, but people still criticise the sure. study saying, look, well, it was industry funded. Well, the, the response to that is, well, where else am I going to get the money from? No, that's exactly right. Mm. Um, I mean, so, uh, I think it's really interesting when you get people like the Friends of Science, they want to see the evidence of any nutritional mm. intervention, but they refuse any uh, any research investigations into that because you can't get it from government, so you've got to get it from enterprise, so therefore it's skewed. And therefore, yep. it's of no use. So it's that you're done either way, really, aren't you? Yeah. So where to now with your research? What is your next on the agenda? Um, well, at the moment, I'm doing a study looking at saffron mm. on its own yep. for teenagers. Yep. So um, we'll, we'll finish recruiting in the next week or two. So that study is looking at uh, saffron uh, in teenagers aged between the age of 12 and 16 suffering from low mood or anxiety. Um, and I want to really look at the effects of saffron in that in that population, uh, and I think that's uh, you know children and, and teenagers is, is an area that's quite neglected in in relation to research in general, but also particularly uh, you know ingre- in natural re- uh, natural ingredients and supplements and things like that. So that's one that I'm about to do, and hopefully we'll have the uh, the data published by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that to be interesting. The other one that I, I, I I've just got to manage time to do really is uh, um, I want to look at, uh, I'm very much into it, you know, while we've talked about supplements, I mean, the reality is that in my practice, I never, ever um, have somebody come in and I say, here, here's some saffron, see you later, or here's some curcumin, see you later. Uh, it, it really is an integrative approach, and, and that's the thing I really want to highlight is mm. the the benefits, the potential benefits of integrating changes in diet, exercise, sleep, and and many of the listeners are already aware of that. That you know, if you combined all of those factors, then you're going to get the most uh, beneficial effect. And we're in. There is the danger of just using supplements, much like uh, pharmaceutical drugs. You know, just you know, people go. You know, obviously, many people go to their doctor and they place her on an antidepressant, and that's the only intervention. Uh, and that's the danger for many people too. With you, they could just take saffron and, and think that by taking saffron, that all their worries are going to go. Mm. So, saying all that in a long-winded way is that um, basically what I would like to do is actually compare an integrative approach, where it would be, you know, maybe a six-session treatment looking at diet, sleep. You know, one session looks at diet, one sleep, one session looks at sleep, and one session is cognitive behaviour therapy and and all those different factors. Um, and comparing that to, to cognitive behaviour therapy on its own. So does the integrative approach, same amount of sessions, six sessions for both, comparing the two groups, yep. and uh, does the integrative approach work as well or better than just a CBT-only treatment? Yeah, so then you can tease out the bang for buck because that's one, yeah. an, another one of my concerns is the cost. How, mm-hmm. do, you, how do you find the acceptance of, of the cost when you 
um, employ an integrative approach, including supplements, especially, I guess, for those people who might be depressed for a long period of time and might have issues with work, with, you know, maintaining work. Um, how does it fit in? That's a, look, I think one of, one of the major criticisms I have with, um, you know, nutritional medicine and, and, and so forth is the cost. And, and obviously, uh, for many people, you know, we took, you know, many practitioners talk about doing all of these, these fancy tests and which cost hundreds and thousands, you know, hundreds of dollars. Mm. Uh, for people, yeah. and and for many people, they just can't do that. Yeah. So I think that what really needs to be is that integrated approach needs to be very personalised. And and for many people, they cannot afford uh, hundreds of dollars of supplements every month. Uh, they cannot afford to do the testing that's required to to determine kind of gut function and things like that. Yeah. So when I'm seeing an individual coming into my practice, I'm assessing the individual. Um, I'm looking at the barriers to intervention. I'm looking at their motivation to change because obviously many people may, who particularly come and see me may not be interested in coming and see a psychologist. And when I talk about diet, you know, they may not be open to making changes in that. Mm. So for me, it's really been going, okay, how about if we look at making small changes in several different areas rather than just targeting one? So if somebody can, if we can engage in some sleep hygiene work so they're sleeping half an hour more, if we can improve their diet by reducing soft drink consumption or drinking water consumption, you know, it's not the ideal diet, but it's better than what it was. Mm. Um, and not everybody needs to go on a gluten-free diet to feel better. The reality is that uh, you know, many people don't need to go on a gluten-free diet to feel better. Uh, and, uh, and if we aim for this perfect diet, then many people are going to fail. So, and maybe then also you know, giving them a couple of supplements, whether it's a, a, just a fish oil initially or a B-complex or, um, or it's just a saffron or a curcumin supplementation, and that might be dependent upon what finances they have available to mm. them and also what they're willing to take. So we really need to look at individual, then target uh, changes in multiple areas, and, uh, and you know, as I said, you, people don't have to walk out with hundreds of dollars of supplements at the end of the consultation. Yeah, I do like that point because I've, I've always stuck to the idiom that uh, these are supplements, not mainaments. The main should be diet. And, you yeah, know, expecting absolutely. a supplement to take the place of an unhealthy diet will not give you any re- yeah. good results. Won't le- what, what did, I think it was Tim, Professor Tim Noakes said he, you can't outrun an unhealthy diet. Is that what it was? Yes. <laughs> Something like that. With regards to your research, though, we, we tend to sort of brush over. We tend to sort of want the glowing results and the nice things that happen to people who take supplements. What about adverse interactions, particularly with regards to antidepressants um, or other medications they might be on? Did you find any issues here? Um, I, with this, the Kirkman studies that I've done, uh, many people, about, I think... I can't remember specifically, but about 50% of people were on antidepressants. So I didn't exclude people on antidepressants. Uh, so what I, I wanted to do was I wanted to use quite a representative sample of people attending, uh, um, completing the uh, study. Yeah. So there wasn't any adverse, well, it was quite well tolerated. The curcumin antidepressant combination was quite well tolerated. So there wasn't really any issues from there. The main issue was around your, uh, um, you know, your digestive problems that sometimes people experience. Burping, with, uh, bloating, taking... cramping, yeah, mm. which you can get um, from water Yeah, <laughs> in, yes. a, in a well, study. 
or the placebo? It's interesting that I've got, uh, yeah, at the moment, even the teenage study, yeah, I think at the moment it's probably placebo getting more side effects than the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I don't, well, I don't know, but they're both... I know, all I know is that the two groups, there's two different groups. I don't know which is which, but it seems as though the two are experiencing digestive, some digestive issues from both conditions. So. Right. I know this is sort of skipping back to a previous point, but I just, it just came up in my mind. When you're looking at recruiting, Adrian, um, when you're looking at recruiting your subjects for the trials and you're based in a university, how does that recruitment take place? Um, we, I mean, I've been using a lot of kind of social media to, uh, to recruit. So I haven't been using university samples, which often is the case in, in many studies. Right. So uh, yeah, with the advent of, uh, of social media, you can um, promote the study to a wide range of individuals. And, and that's where I've probably got the most of my... Uh, of my uh, participants. Okay, so now back to the present. <laughs> when you're speaking about, um, you know, a, a significant portion of these um, participants being on medications, what about the responsibilities and perhaps even red flags when you're treating people, um, depressed patients who might be on medications? How do you refer um, back to their psychiatrist to say, hey, listen, they're part of this trial? Or indeed, how do you defer and say, i got a hands-off here because there's something going on here that, um, you know, I think it's serious, you need to handle something. What do you do there on an ethical perspective? Well, I mean, in, in the studies, you're trying to use a, a less complicated uh, group of individuals from a, from a health perspective um, and also even with regard to your medication. So uh, many people who are on multiple medications, you, you're not going to include them. Uh, in a study, and uh, because it just complicates things from that perspective, yep. uh, and then also people presenting with your serious uh, mental health disturbances or suicidal ideation or things like that, you won't include in the study because you just can't um, you, you can't work well. You can't kind of monitor those individuals very well. So, so not so much of an issue with regards to the studies because they'll be excluded. I mean, but obviously within the, within our practice. You know, if we're working with individuals on medications, it's extremely important for us to be able to liaise with their general practitioner or psychiatrist if they're seeing one. Mm. So for the future, um, you know, I, I noted that you've also done some research into SAGE um, in its um, cognitive enhancive and maybe protective effects. What do you think, you know, when, when you're looking at depressed people who can't think straight as part of this inflammatory process, have you got any thoughts about including SAGE in further trials or is that done and dusted? How did it work? Well, the, I, I mean, I wrote a re review paper on SAGE. I actually haven't done any um, uh, uh, personal studies on, on the effects of Forgive SAGE. Me. Um, yeah. So I looked particularly at um, just reviewing the evidence in terms of its efficacy on cognitive function. And the results were really quite positive. Um, unfortunately, it's kind of slowed down. So a lot of the research around SAGE has slowed down, and uh, and that's something yeah, that I certainly would like to look at at some stage. But it all depends on on time and uh, and funding, I suppose. Mm. But I think certainly Sage as an adjunct to uh, uh, antidepressant medications, whether they be natural or uh, or pharmaceutical, might be a really interesting thing to look at because we know that cognitive deficits is a common symptom with people with depression. Yeah, and I guess just as a wrap up question, when you Talking about negative thoughts that are included in this feeling of depression, this feeling of non-worth, of guilt, of 
um, you know, lack of self-esteem. And it's often sort of said that, you know, negativity breeds negativity. So for those people who are already in that mindset, they, they don't see the light in the tunnel. How hard do you find it to twig them, to, to turn them towards, a, you know, a point in the tunnel where there is light? It may be distant, but there is a glimmer of light. How hard do you find that? What sort of tricks do you employ, I guess, to, um, to show people, hey, there's another direction? I mean, it can be very difficult. I, I think that, you know, certainly, you know, the, the characteristic of depression is that, that demotivation. So, mm. so getting many people with, with depression to change can be very difficult. And that's where really, you know, it's, it's about, again, I'm going to harp on it, about just working with the individual and just uh, personalising the treatment, um, developing a good rapport with them, uh, providing information and about why are we doing what we're doing? And then asking them, you know, what changes can they make? You know, here's a list of possibilities that we can work on. Uh, there's dietary changes, there's exercise, there's sleep, there's supplements, there's psychological techniques. And, you know, which ones are you ready to work on? And, and how much change are you willing to make in that particular area? So it's right. really, uh, you know, assessing their motivation and, and then assessing their barriers to change, you know, uh, if they're lacking in energy, getting them to exercise is going to be very difficult. So maybe we'll work on energy first. Uh, if, uh, you know, if a big issue for them is around, um, I suppose the thing too is that for many, I suspect you know, many naturopaths are listening to, to these podcasts is, mm. is also assessing like, is the naturopathic approach or the, the dietary changes, should you be working on that first? So there are other factors that maybe you need to work on first or maybe you need to refer on. Um, and you know, maybe they need, do need some psychological therapy. Maybe they need some, some assistance around stress management. Maybe they need to increase their social networks. And, and that's the one that you, you may need to work on mm, first. Mm. So whether you have the skills to do that yourself or refer on, I'm a big believer in, in working with, with you know, various several other disciplines and I think uh, you know, it's a multidisciplinary approach where we respect each other's uh, skills and strengths and we work together as a team to help the individual. I said the last question but of course I've now got another question <laughs> when you're talking about interreferral. How do you dialogue with somebody, with a psychiatrist who, you know, let's face it, they're, they're going to be at the top of the pecking order with regards to intervention. I guess, you know, there's a, an area of, res- an, an air of responsibility and indeed litigation that they've got to um, cover. Um, how do you dialogue um, and interrefer with psychiatrists in particular, indeed other professions, and how do you find the interreferral back? Do you find that happens or do they tend to sort of say, you hands off? Are they unwilling to in, um, acknowledge that there may be a dietary or um, supplement, a place for supplements? Well, there's going to be, I mean, there is a, a, a selection of psychiatrists who just really aren't willing to, to look at that or consider dust, dust, diet or supplements as, as an intervention. Mm. Uh, and, and for those um, people, their eyes are closed and they're just not willing to, to, to acknowledge um, the role that it has. But saying that, I think for the majority of psychiatrists, they are um, you know, aware of the importance of diet and they are willing to acknowledge that. The issue, though, is you know, is how much, and I suppose this is the thing I want people to consider, is how much do they liaise with doctors and psychiatrists? Um, 
I must admit, I have never ever um, received a, uh, a letter or a phone call really from a, a naturopath contacting me and saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. And so I've never received that phone call. So I'm not saying it's not happening, but I've never received that yeah. phone call. So, so I really challenge people to go to ask themselves, do they liaise? Do they pick up the phone? Do they send a letter um, just providing an update to the psychiatrist or, or doctor, um, just providing them to, with some information about the intervention that's been offered and the formulation and so forth. And I think with that information, and sometimes what I've done is I've included, if I've included um, saffron as part of the regimen, I might include a copy of the paper. Yeah. So I send a letter and I've included a copy of the paper, of you know, my paper, for example, on saffron, uh, uh, on uh, a review and whether they do anything with that, I don't know. But it's at least um, you know showing them that you know I'm I'm not just doing things that are based on my opinion. I am you know there is a research component to, to a lot of the work that I'm doing. So and I think that makes them a lot more open. I now get a psychiatrists emailing me saying, "Hey, uh, you know what recommendations do you have? I've got somebody with PTSD. Are there any supplements that you might recommend in conjunction with the work that I'm doing?" So mm. it does happen. It takes time, um, but you do need to to um, to put some effort into uh, to liaising and developing a relationship with them. Dr. Adrian Lepresti, I thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Not just taking us through the exciting things with regards to, you know, some interventions with regards to uh, uh, curcumin and saffron, but I think very importantly and responsibly the care that you take um, with your patients in personalising their approach. And lastly, I wish you well in your future endeavours, showing what results these interventions have in your patients. I really thank you for your previous and future work. Thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards are fast approaching. The Beamers showcase the outstanding talent we have in the Australasian integrative medicine profession and are held in conjunction with the Bioceuticals Research Symposium. To book your ticket to this gala dinner event, visit bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.